Our skies are full of things. Put a little plainly, I know, but it's an inescapable fact. Our ancestors became so intimate with the celestial bodies, they began to map both them and their courses. Much of this groundwork can still be seen today as we inch closer and closer to understanding our universe, at least a little bit better. Through the expanse that is the sky, our eyes wander. Most of the time, we know what we see because we tend to see the same things recurring. Birds, clouds, the sun, moon, and stars, and in more recent decades, planes and other man-made machines. Most of us tend to use logic when it comes to things we see in the sky. Did it look like a bird or a cloud? Was it traveling as fast as a plane? Was it as loud as a helicopter? All questions that run through our minds when witnessing something above us. All of these questions are meant to be quick, logical identifiers when it comes to things above ground level. But what happens when we run through these ideas and none apply? What happens when multiple people see the same unidentifiable thing and cannot find a reasonable explanation amongst themselves? Furthermore, what happens when you have photographic evidence to refer back to and have the help of academia and still come up short? Well, that's when you can get your popcorn ready. Thank you for joining us today on the Supernatural Tendencies podcast, where we'll try to light up some details of this fascinating case. And be sure to hang out afterwards for this week's Musician Spotlight, this week featuring 408. I'm Alex. I'm Christy. And I'm Christina. And this is episode 42, The Lubbock Lights. Lubbock, Texas is known as the Hub City. It gained this moniker by being encircled by five major highways, making it look like a wagon wheel on a map. The 1950s would usher in a considerable amount of growth for the town, starting at about 70,000 some odd people and ballooning to over 128,000 by 1960. Texas Technological College would open its doors in 1925, going on to become Texas Tech University. Go Red Raiders! Today, the town in northwest Texas would lay claim to have more music venues than any other city per capita in the state, which makes a lot of sense when considering that Buddy Holly would be born there in 1936. But it would be an event from August to November of 1951 that would start a blaze on headlines across the country. On the night of August 25, 1951, Dr. A.G. Oberg, Dr. W.L. Ducker and Dr. Wilbur Robinson all sat in Dr. Robinson's backyard when they would see a series of 20 to 30 greenish-blue lights flying in a V pattern overhead. All three men would be astonished by the sight. They didn't hear any noise before or after the flyby from the eerie lights, so their minds went to meteors. Could they have just seen a meteor or a cluster of meteors fall to Earth? They quickly ruled this out because of the seemingly coordinated pattern of the objects. They would only have their estimations confirmed against the meteor possibility when the lights would fly by again an hour later, leaving them with even more questions. The initial sighting of the lights would make another appearance to an Atomic Energy Commission's worker and his wife, who were in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 350 miles away from Lubbock. 
They claimed to be admiring the night sky when a very large aircraft passed overhead, with a series of six to eight pairs of bluish lights on its underside. They would make special mention of the size of the aircraft, as well as how silently it flew. A rancher near Lubbock would have his wife burst through the door of their home that same night in a terrible fright. In a panic, she would tell him that while taking clothes off the line, there had been a large and silent aircraft that had flown over their house. She would describe it as looking like an airplane without a body. During this rash of sightings, a student of the college, Carl Hart Jr., would capture a series of photographs that would show the lights as they passed overhead. While still being a bit grainy, one can still clearly see each individual light as they seem to change formation from a two-layered V pattern to a single-file boomerang. The professors would still be debating what exactly they had seen in the sky when they would conclude that the lights were moving at an incredible speed. Admittedly, if one were to do research on the subject on their own, they may find a very large discrepancy on the estimated speed of the lights. Some of the more reliable sources say that they were estimated to be going about 600 miles per hour, so we'll stick with that estimate for now. Aside from this, some of them said that Hart's photo wasn't the same thing they had seen. They argued that the photos show lights in a more of a U shape as opposed to the V pattern they had witnessed. Seems to be splitting hairs when it comes to lights in the sky, but who knows for sure. The sightings would soon catch the attention of the U.S. government, and a representative from Project Blue Book would be on the case. By the time U.S. Air Force Captain Edward J. Ruppelt would arrive in Lubbock, hundreds of sightings would be amassed from people living in the town. At this point, we want to take a possible long sidetrack with discussing Project Blue Book. Some of you may be already well-versed in this chapter of American history, but for those who aren't, let's get you up to speed. Many today may not initially recognize the importance of identifying UFOs in American airspace, simply beyond proof of possible extraterrestrial visitations. But we must start with a basic understanding of the geopolitical climate in which Project Blue Book was embroiled. After the end of World War II, and we're going to shorten this extremely, tensions began to rise between the Eastern Communist countries, like the Soviet Union, and the Western, more or less capitalist countries, the United States. This would lead to what was called the Cold War. The Cold War was called such because of its lack of all-out battles fought between the above-stated countries. No, the world found itself the stage for funds being funneled to smaller groups to wage war to gain geographic and political ground called proxy wars. We are certainly not trying to insult anyone's intelligence here. We just want to make sure everyone is on the same page. Not everyone who listens may be history nerds like us here at Supernatural Tendencies. After the conclusion of World War II, the Atomic Age was well on its way to being on everyone's mind. The show of force seen at Hiroshima and Nagasaki would forever change how warfare among countries who could afford to have massive atomic arsenals would conduct themselves worldwide. This would be seen in the nuclear arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union. The idea of mutually assured destruction, or the idea that no matter the reason, if we see missiles coming, we're firing right back, kept an event nothing short of the apocalypse fresh in everyone's mind at all times. This could easily be seen in the United States with a term called the Red Scare. The Red Scare and the accompanying McCarthyism, we're going to stay away from this one for today, so if you're unfamiliar, do look it up, ensured that there were communists lurking around every corner, even in the skies. Whew, now we come back to Project Blue Book. Project Blue Book was a third iteration of a governmental task force charged with studying UFO reports in the United States, the first of which was called Project Sign. 
It is said that the project was initially named Saucer. Regardless of the title, the project was initially focused on investigating aerial phenomena that could possibly pose a national security risk. As romantic as it may sound to most extraterrestrial enthusiasts, the worry of a security risk was initially focused on the Soviets and what they were possibly using for spying purposes within American airspace. While being established in 1947, the project's first reports would be issued in 1949. It would detail numerous sightings of unidentified flying objects, most of which were explained as natural occurrences. A small number, though, would be classified certainly as aircraft, but as having unknown origins. Again, leading both commie hunters and would-be ufologists lunging for guns and cameras, respectively. Sign would then end, almost ominously, if we may add, that it recommended further investigation. Shortly after, Sign would be changed to Project Grudge. Grudge would continue in the same vein as Sign, but as opposed to the curiosity of possible flying saucers being seen. Well, Air Force Captain Edward J. Rappel would say it better than anyone when he wrote, quote, In doing this, standard intelligence procedures would be used. This normally means an unbiased evaluation of intelligence data. But it doesn't take a great deal of study of the old UFO files to see that standard intelligence procedures were not being followed by Project Grudge. Everything was being evaluated on the premise that UFOs couldn't exist. No matter what you see or hear, don't believe it. Keep Rappelt in mind. He will become a key player in Lubbock, if we ever get back to it, that is. Grudge would see a massive PR campaign used to help quell the fears of, quote, men from Mars. This, of course, could be seen as choosing a side of the coin that had Martians on one side and communists on the other. The findings of Grudge produced in 1949 would essentially sum up as follows. 1. There are no Martian-made or manned aircraft flying above the United States. 2. All study of the subject for gains of proof of such should be greatly reduced by the government because they will find exactly what we did. Airplanes, stars, weather balloons, etc. 3. The culprits of the unidentified aerial phenomena are misidentifications of natural subjects, mass hysteria, and war nerves, hoaxers and liars, and quote, psychopathological persons. While we did just sum up the findings, unfortunately, our summation isn't far off at all of what actually was written in the report. So in short, if you witness anything unusual in the night sky that you can't explain, you are either misidentifying what you are seeing, a liar, or flat out crazy. After the findings of Project Grudge, some say that some people in the military did take offense to the UFOs don't exist stance that Grudge had taken. It appears that the possibility of extraterrestrials being brushed off in such an outward manner warranted another try. Now we come to Project Blue Book. Considered, at least in its early years, as being the most open-minded of the projects for the subject, Air Force Captain Edward J. Rappelt would be put in charge of Blue Book and would be credited with first using the term unidentified flying object. Before then, flying saucer and flying disc were the common vernacular, but the military felt the terms were misleading. It would be under these circumstances that Rupelt would travel to Texas to have his turn with the Lubbock Lights. Ah, here we are again. Good old Lubbock. Told you we'd be back. As Rupelt came into town in September of 1951, he was welcomed by an already budding investigation. The group of professors who had sighted the lights were already well on their way to finding an answer, or so they thought. 
They had contacted multiple other witnesses, by then numerous in quantity, and were tying all the reports together, including their own. Using as many accounts as they could, they had discerned the direction and arc of travel the lights were taking, and even had divided up into two teams to calculate the light speed, with little success. Rupel would start on his own investigation, and would quickly notice something odd. Upon speaking with multiple witnesses, he was starting to get the impression that many of the people who had seen the lights had only seen them after the professors had their story published in the local paper. This possibly means that many may not even have noticed them if it were not for the prompting of the article in the paper. Rupelt himself would rely on an old sentiment in his writing when he penned, quote, Do people even look up if they have no reason to do so? One thing is for sure, whatever it was that people were seeing in Lubbock, it was truly unsettling to all involved. One story that would convey this sentiment to Rupelt would be his interview of a rancher who had seen the lights for himself. The rancher had explained that he had seen a lot in his life. Between range wars, stagecoaches, and confrontations with Native Americans, not a lot scared him. But these lights, these lights scared him. An interesting aside to this interview, the rancher fell right in line with the numerous people who had only started looking for lights after their attention had been brought to them via the newspaper articles. Furthermore, the rancher had a theory of his own. He believed the lights to be plovers, a type of migratory shorebird whose white oily undersides were reflecting the lights from the newly installed mercury vapor streetlights down below. Rupel thought that this was as plausible a theory as any. Of course, over the course of the investigation, meteors were even a possible explanation. The plover theory would be held by several witnesses of the phenomenon. In fact, some would even claim to hear the sounds that were distinctly plover in nature as they passed overhead. A local farmer, T.E. Snyder, would claim that while attending a drive-in movie, he would see a group of plovers fly overhead. He would say that their undersides did indeed reflect light from the ground. Another individual who had seen the initial flyby that the professors had seen had also watched the second and third waves of sightings on the same night. He attested that on the third pass, the lights actually circled his house for a time. It was then that he recognized the lights, undeniably, as plovers. This sentiment would also be agreed upon by one of the university's professors who had witnessed the lights when he was contacted by Rupelt. The local academia seemed to be at odds with itself in explaining what was being seen. Some combat this idea by saying that plovers are not known to travel in the amount that was seen in the lights. Rupel would also speak with the local game warden, who would say that while plovers wouldn't be out of the realm as an explanation, he would find it unlikely due to the perceived speed of the lights compared to the flight speed that plovers usually maintain. A one Dr. Mead had witnessed the lights and was convinced that they were not simply plovers. He argued that the lights were too big to be birds that would have to be much closer to the witnesses to appear as the same size as what was being seen in the lights. He continued that if plovers were as close as they needed to be in order to appear that large in the sky, there would be no doubt that they were clearly seen as birds. While he couldn't be sure on the exact speed of the lights, his hunting experience told him that for the explanation to be birds, they would have to be flying extremely low for them to pass out of sight so quickly. This, in his opinion, proves that the lights were much higher up in the sky and flying much faster than an ordinary bird could fly. This does lead us to a very interesting concept, not that common among UFO sightings. Most lights in the sky sightings tend to be solitary events. The Lubbock lights stray far from this common formula of lights appear, people see, incident is reported, end of story, by reappearing multiple times a night, in some cases, and over the course of several months. 
While plovers was the most widely accepted naturally occurring theory at the time, plovers were a known bird of the area. Could the factors of newly installed streetlights and overactive war nerves affect people's perception to the point of transforming a foot-long bird into anomalous and foreboding lights? Even Rupelt himself thought this to be a stretch. By the end of his investigation, Rupelt would not have any concrete answers for the Air Force, while one could easily shoot into the fish barrel of possible misidentifications that it could have been, Rupelt would remain relatively silent until his book in 1956. Titled, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, Rupelt would write somewhat ominously, quote, They weren't birds, they weren't refracted light, but they weren't spaceships. The lights have been positively identified as a very commonplace and easily explainable natural phenomenon. It is very unfortunate that I can't divulge the way the answer was found, Telling the story would lead to the identity of the scientist who finally hit upon the answer, and I promise the man complete anonymity. We have to put on our obligatory conspiracy hat here and mention how noticed this case had become. It had garnered national attention, and would even have a full-fledged article written in Life magazine in April of 1952. To be clear, this wasn't some unnoticed sighting that had come to popular light years after it occurred. No, for a time, this story had its own spotlight. With this idea, one has to wonder if the growing heat from that spotlight played into governmental explanations of the incidents. Rupelt's wording of natural phenomenon as being the definitive cause, yet still being vague as to what the lights were exactly, have led many to still wonder. Is this really a case of military test vehicles closing the case for us? Then again, maybe we're reading too much into the phrasing used. But do man-made aircraft constitute a natural phenomenon? More so, if the government were trying to test new technology without being noticed, aren't there much more remote locations this could have been achieved than over a decently populated town? Multiple times a night. Over the course of months. It's all interesting, to say the least. This case hasn't left the popular consciousness, though. The History Channel has even retold the story in its series inventively titled Project Blue Book. Unfortunately, as is the case with many networks now, they decided to take the docudrama route when taking us through the investigations of Dr. J. Allen Hynek in the series. You may find this odd since we haven't mentioned Dr. Hynek much at all in this episode. As one would have guessed, the show takes the majority of the investigation away from Edward Rappelt and hands it to Dr. Hynek. Why? For a good and continuous story, of course. We hope to not downplay Dr. Hynek's involvement with Project Blue Book, or Project Sign and Grudge for that matter, but in some cases, as the saying goes, why let history get in the way of a good story? Even while this writer had grown up with the traditional documentary style one would hope from a channel that literally labels itself as being historical, it's no surprise that the show was cancelled after two seasons. Despite its impressive and convincing cast, the show may have strayed too far into a fictional story, growing more concerned with the roller coaster of personal affairs while only maintaining the core facts of any given case. You know what? To hell with professionalism. We wanted to see more Flatwoods Monster, History Channel. Not just two seconds in the opening scene to be never seen again. If you're going to make it a docudrama, make it fun for the throngs of people who want to see more aliens. Come on now. Okay, I'll calm down. Regardless, the case of the Lubbock Lights still holds the attention of enthusiasts and non-versed alike. Being one of the starting investigations that ended with more vague answers than you can shake a stick at, it has led us to the common trope of laughable government findings and intrigue surrounding aerial phenomena. But for those who still ask questions with their eyes turned skyward, 
we may soon be getting close to the day of solid evidence of what may be in the sky. Watching back. hell of a stretch wow oh it was great i don't care what anybody thinks about it how's everybody doing today thank you for joining us Kinda why can so, i hear so. myself do i hear myself checking i hear myself now we're good i don't like hearing myself technically yeah, we don't like hearing you either <laughs> oh, oh man uh, oh, oh man there's about to be a missing person report not uh, filed uh, oh, oh, earlier no. you were like huh if you should die <laughs> like uh, we wouldn't be upset no <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't like to come quite the opposite with, with quite the opposite. What would, uh, he says. Be pretty jovial about the situation, most jovial. likely. Jovial. Anyway, thank you for uh, joining us today on our discussion for the uh, Lubbock Lights. Lubbock. 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 I feel like <laughs> I feel like whatever accent you have, you can give up halfway through, and it's still completely fine. Uh, Lubbock. Lubbock. <laughs> Lubbock. I'm sorry, people from Lubbock are like, what the hell? <laughs> what did he just say? What the hell? <laughs> anyway, wow. Anyway, as you might see by our live feed, uh, of course, audio listeners, you're at a disadvantage. But hey, that's that's the road you choose to live on. That's fine. Uh, for everybody in the live feed today, you see the, the nice little red line radio logo um, at the bottom right-hand corner, I think that is, of the screen. That is because we are officially part of the Redline Redline Radio Media lineup. Our show, our our slot, if we can make it there on time, uh, is what is it Tuesday from four to five? Yeah, is that correct? Yeah. Of course, we wouldn't know because we were late. We're late. We were late on our first one. No, see, so. I had everything ready, and then you're like, "No, don't do that episode. Do this one." No. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Oh wait. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, yeah. Oh yeah. So then I had to redo it. But technically, we're talking like three days before we're meant to air. Is when I was like, "Don't do that one. Do no, you, the dolls." You sprang it on me right before. Remember, because I'm having you text. Oh yeah, it was. Was yeah, it? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I was, was like, oh okay. It no, was. Mind. <laughs> my bad. It Carry was on. my fault. <laughs> Oh, no, man. you were wrong. We are sir. wrong. If you didn't catch some of our, uh, I think it was our, during midweek mischiefs, we kind of talked about that. Um, I'm not sure if we talked about it uh, since then or not. Uh, we are part of the Redline uh, Radio Media Network. Uh, Redline Internet Radio has uh, just a slew of great shows that you can check out. Uh, they do have an app for Android only, but I believe they're working on the Apple app as well. Did you just take a drink into your microphone? With ice and everything in there? <laughs> no, that was last week. It was like three days before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> check them out if you have an android app uh, get on there and pop in that app on your phone check it out for a little bit uh, for those of you who do not have an android you can find it on um, any other device that has internet connection i mean i'm sure if you have an apple phone you can get on the browser and look look at it through the browser it's hot in here it is hot, hot in here we're in northwest ohio we're about to have some absolutely hellacious storms yeah, coming through kicking up yeah uh they they already calling it straight line winds, which if you're not from around here, we we had never heard of the term straight line winds till about what 15 years ago. It's gonna flip your ass. And then something <laughs> something that looked oddly like a tornado came through, and yeah. lo and behold, it was a straight line wind. Okay, so well, well, no, but Finley was like, it wasn't a tornado. It was, it was so not a tornado. They're like, we're like, but it destroyed 14 barns. I know, but like, it wasn't a tornado. They go, but did the alarms go off? No, then it wasn't a tornado. Then see, <laughs> and then they, some for some reason they've upped how many times they've they're testing the tornado sirens since then. I don't know why that is. Make the connection yourself. <laughs> anyway, oh, yeah. anyway, so 
Uh, without further ado, uh, one last time, plug in Redline. Uh, get on their uh, pages. Uh, the, of course, they have their Instagram, Facebook. Give them a like. Give them a listen. Give them a follow. What have you? Do we have any more house cleaning for today? Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. Did you look up at the jewelry board? Why do you have what, jewelry what? I'm not allowed to admire my jewelry, even what? though I hardly ever wear it. What? If I want to look up and admire it, I'm going to do it. She has, Okay, let me let me take you on a little stroll here, everybody. <laughs> um, on the on the door there, she's got a random pin board that's got jewelry on it. That's because I normally have that door open, and I have to hide my jewelry from the cats. Oh, that's why. That makes at least that makes a little bit of sense because they'll get into it, and it's just jewelry everywhere. And she had to double check, to make sure it was still there. Anyway, like, let's move on. All right, we can go on. Let's move on. Today we're talking about the Lubbock Lights. If you've never heard of the Lubbock Lights. I don't know what to tell you. You will hear about it today, and hopefully you will like it. Uh, our skies are pretty much full of things. Things. Things, right? <laughs> most things Most things we look up and we identify, we identify things that we see because a lot of things in the sky are reoccurring, right? Yeah. I mean, we have, we have stars and we have, what else is in the sky? Satellites, <laughs> space stations. Sure, there planets, we go. The sun, the moon, and now planets. We have, and now we have, in the past quite a few decades we have airplanes and such right helicopters really don't count because if you can't identify a helicopter while it's beating your face going over your head with a thud 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 then you're just a lost cause but airplanes generally have a formation of lights that are uh legally obligated to be on there right yes. just like boats cars and everything else so you tend to look up and you see like moving lights and you my first thought is looking for the blinking green or the or the red or whatever along with the yeah, white making sure it's not a ufo exactly also <laughs> we'll go well actually i have a small story that i was pushed to share today i haven't told you guys yet we'll talk about it we'll talk Secrets. about it later well yeah, we'll talk about it later um but you you usually know an airplane when it's when it's going through the sky uh, whether or not it's by light orientation or speed, you can kind of judge whether it's a you know passenger airline or a jet. If you again, we've had like sonic booms happen in town here from the flybys. Yeah, that's literally like shaken like whole houses before. So uh, again, these are things that we we are are, are the things these things are things that are known to be in the sky. Things that we see every day, every night. You know, it's not surprising. But what happened on that balmy? No. Balmy? Is it sweltering in Lubbock in August? <laughs> Probably, Probably, yeah. Is it? It's sweltering in Ohio in August. <laughs> It'd be damn near lethal in Texas. Like, you just, as soon as you step foot in the state, you just, like, fall over. I do think it's snow in Lubbock, though, don't they? I don't know. Where's Trista when you need her? I know. I know. Trista's <laughs> you know? not here to let us know. I don't know where, where Sweetwater, because she's in Sweetwater, right? She's, a, yeah. I'm not sure where Sweetwater is from Lubbock. Know. I barely know where Lubbock is, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll let you know. Lubbock is in the north. West is it the Panhandle? That little square. I know Oklahoma I has a Panhandle. Yeah, and Florida has a Panhandle. But is something vertical considered a Panhandle? I don't think so. You don't think so? No. What would you call it? A lid. Like the top a of lid. the yeah. top, the top of a ninja chopper. That'd be a chopper. The, the top of it, where you got to put the plug in. It's a lid. Is the, it still a lid if it counts as a plug too? The yeah. pounder. Oh, it's a lid. I you gotta know. close it on top of it. Okay, we're gonna call it the lid of Texas. <laughs> Situated right, right at the bottom of the lid of Texas. Up in the lid <laughs> of Texas. <laughs> okay, that was corny. I that was, but oh. we're gonna we're gonna take it on that sweltering August night of November twenty third, nineteen fifty one. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mixed it up. Anyway, I completely screwed up the dates on that sweltering August night, which was the twenty fifth of nineteen fifty one. 
Oh, I read too far ahead. Oh my gosh. Sweltering August night of, of the 25th, 1951. Three to four. I say three to four because I only seen one source that said four. College professors would see a series of lights pass overhead. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about Texas first. Um, in the 1950s, it had seen a considerable, considerable, considerable amount of growth, spanning from 70,000 some odd people to over 128,000 by 1960. Lubbock is also the hometown of uh, the Texas Technological College, uh, which had opened in 1925 and become Texas Tech University. I'm assuming you guys have heard of Texas Tech? No, yes. I haven't heard of that one. Are I know, s- like Texas A&M. Are you serious? You haven't heard of Texas Tech? Yeah, I haven't. The, the T and then T? T, T and then T. Nothing? Hmm. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> she just shrugs. I know, That's Tex- all right. I know Texas A&M. <clears throat> yeah. And then what's the other one? There's University of Texas. Yeah. Right? There's yeah. the Longhorns. Yeah. Yeah. Longhorns. Yeah. yeah. And, and then there's Texas Tech. But I don't know about that. There's another one in there that... Ah, is it Temple? There's a there's a there's another one in Texas that like doesn't say it's Texas. It's something else. Oh, okay, yeah. But I could be wrong on Temple. I don't know. I don't know. Don't hold me to that. Come on. Anyway, uh, so we have uh, what else we got here? Uh, uh, Texas Tech University. Um, also, Lubbock holds the record, um, title, award for having the most music venues of any other city per capita in Texas. Huh. Yep, makes a lot of sense since Buddy Holly would be born. In 1936. In I love me somebody, Holly. I figured uh, I add that in just for you, actually. Thanks. Mm, you're welcome. So these three to four professors would be sitting in their backyard. Uh, and I believe they were professors from Texas, the Texas Technological College. And they would see these this array of lights pass overhead. Now, these uh, professors' names would be... And I love these names because we're still in the era of you having two letters and then your last name. So you have Dr. A.G. Oberg, Dr. W.L. Ducker... And I have Dr. Wilbur Robinson. Now, technically, in a lot of the sources I've seen, um, they actually refer to him as a letter, letter, last name. Oh. But I am I needed to mix it up. I wasn't going to have all these letters because all these letters confuse it's me. too many. It's too many letters. <clears throat> too, you guys need to spread out. Why are all you initial professors all gathered together? What do initial professors get together and do? What do they call each other? What would you call a group of professors? A gaggle. <laughs> <laughs> Like a gaggle of geese. It's going to be, oh, look at this. It's a gaggle of professors. A controversy? Yeah. A (laughs) A controversy of professors? Yeah, that's it. (laughs) That's terrible. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, sitting out back sipping scotch in their smoking jackets. Why scotch? Why not like Arnie Palmies or something like that? I just, if they're, if it's, if it's 1951 and it's not a Harvey Wallbanger, I'm thinking it's scotch. A Cosmopolitan. Yeah, but these don't. True. That's some of the housewife. Yeah, I was going to say, did male professors really, were they really known for scotch? Gin and vermouth (laughs) is what we're drinking An old fashioned? An old fashioned. fashioned. Shirley Temple. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's that's for later in the night. (laughs) Anyway, they would see this series of lights. Shaped in a V pattern, there'd be about 20 to 30 they would they would peg it at. Greenish blue lights flying in a V pattern overhead. Uh, at first, their their minds would go to meteors, but 20 to 30 meteors or one meteor break it up into a V-shaped pattern seems kind of like a stretch before it would fizzle out, right? Uh, even beyond that, after its first pass, about 40 minutes, maybe an hour later, it would pass over again. Now, I think it made a third pass also, but I didn't have any clarification as to how long... That third pass might have happened, but there are references later in our story that would say that on the initial night, it did pass three times. Mm-hmm. Um, they would 
only have their estimations confirmed against the meteor possibility when the lights would fly by again. We already we already said that. The initial sighting of lights would actually make another appearance, uh, another appearance, 350 miles away from Lubbock in Albuquerque, New Mexico, by an atomic energy commissions worker and his wife. They would say that they would see a very large aircraft that would pass overhead with a series of six to eight pairs of bluish lights on its underside. They would make special mention of the size of the aircraft, as well as how silently it had flown over. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we have. Uh, corroboration of possibly a, something something or some things that had traveled fast enough to make it to Lubbock, then to make it to Albuquerque, and then come back to Lubbock? Is that how you... Did it make it to... I, I didn't think it made it to Albuquerque. I thought even though they were in Albuquerque, they could, you know, like it was so big that they could see it. How big does something have to be for you to see it 350 miles away? Pretty Pretty yeah. big. <laughs> you remember that one time you remember that one time anyway sure i guess right i don't think it really says though did it did it say that it went from lubbock to albuquerque back to lubbock in my initial source that i started using that's what it had said well i didn't say that i went back and forth it just said that we have the initial sighting by these professors in their backyard and then this atomic energy commission worker and his wife had seen it in albuquerque 350 oh, miles away. Okay. So regardless of the trajectory or the flight pattern or the the flight path, what you will, of whatever this thing or things are, uh, somehow it got back to Lubbock for multiple passes. Yeah. Unless it did multiple passes across, <laughs> unless it did multiple passes across Lubbock before going to Albuquerque and then terminating somehow. Yeah, that could be, I guess. Uh, regardless. A rancher near Lubbock would also say that his wife would burst through the door of their home in a panic, she would tell him that, the cl- that she was taking the clothes off the line when there had been a large, silent aircraft that had flown over the house. She would describe it as looking like an airplane without a body. So does that make it cigar-shaped? That's kind of what I pictured, but then, like, you know, in this photo here the, and the other descriptions, yeah. they, that's not what they say. So this that's kind of confusing with that rancher, with the rancher's wife's description of what yeah. she had seen, yeah. right? So, you went ahead and put up the, the, the picture. Thank you. Uh, we do have pictures of the Lubbock Lights. During this rash of sightings, a college student by the name of Carl Hart Jr. would capture a series of photographs that would show the lights that they passed overhead. Now, they had passed over, and this, was, this wasn't this was during the initial uh, investigation, I don't think, the initial witnessing of the event. I think this might have been a couple days after. And the reason why I'm pretty sure that's the case is because the initial sighting, everybody saw it once, and then to their surprise, they saw it again, and then to their surprise, they saw it again. It's coming back around. Now, the craziest thing about the Lubbock Lights <laughs> is uh, it uh, they occurred from August to November multiple times a night. So by the time we have a few nights had, had you know had passed, had elapsed, they had people had gotten the idea that you usually just don't see them once. They usually come a couple times. So they had passed over, and the Carl Hart Jr. got his camera out and ready for a second pass, to which, here it comes, and he caught a series of, I think at some points I had like four or six pictures available oh, wow. of those. And if you look at the pictures here, and we'll try to describe it for our audio listeners, uh, we, have a, we have a cut picture here, uh, well, two pictures kind of laid next to each other. The right side picture sounds like what people are seeing as we're going to, as uh, well, as we're going to go through these descriptions. It looks like a series of lights and I did not count them. If you guys get bored enough, you can count them. Uh, but it looks like just like a single 18. file, file row of what looks to be like a boomerang V shape. Okay. Now we're going to, we're going to like attack that shape 
here in a little bit. Uh, but for now, we're just going to call it a V because if no one told you otherwise, that's probably how someone would describe it. I was going to say more like the less than sign. <clears throat> okay, sure. Yeah, but that's or is, just... Or is that greater than? That would be that would be less than. less than. Less than, yeah. Less than. Uh, but... But regardless, that is pretty much a V turned on its side. Yeah. Whatever side you want to be greater than or less than. But regardless, it's, it looks like a V-shaped single line pattern. Now, the photograph on the left, which supposedly had been from the same series of photos Carl Hart Jr. had taken, looks like these lights are... How, how would you describe that? Like zigzag pattern while still being in a V-shape? Kind of, yeah. Almost as if they were sides of a zipper, almost. Without the middle zipper kind of thing? Yeah. I'm, try- I'm trying to come up with other descriptors. Yeah, that's a good, that's if you guys good. have anything, I mean, like offset polka dots while still being in the V, that's the last one I would do. Uh, so it almost looks like these are sep- two separate things that he's photographing. Now, yeah. Now, my question really is, is, is what we're seeing here with the first one, if you look at the right picture again, some of the dots look smeared. That's what I was just looking at and the, versus the one on the left. Which they look pretty definitive yeah. as circles. Different size circles yeah but so uh, the one on the right could it be uh, a perspective thing when he first took a picture that the whether by them the movement of the lights or by the way his camera was pointing at it that kind of smeared those be. two lights together yeah, yeah. Could be. and then the left one maybe maybe it was more straight on or something like that mm-hmm. uh but they at first glance if if you were not to talk about it or not to think about it they almost look like two separate photographs they do uh, of, of two separate things i mean the professors, while still debating what exactly they had seen in the sky when they had, uh, would conclude that the lights were moving at an incredible speed. Now, this is one caveat I want to make, right? We have our legitimate sources. I don't want to say legitimate because that sounds kind of judgmental. I don't want to be that. But uh, the, a lot of the sources we use kind of pegged it at being like 600 miles an hour, right? Which I, I think the average fighter jet, like an F-89 Scorpion, was going like four or 500 miles an hour. That's a rough guess. Yeah. So these things like... I don't think they're going crazy fast. Now, I'm not an aviator, and I didn't do much background on, on on this section. And the reason why is because we have another some other points that we hit harder on than the actual speed, because you'll see later why. Uh, but it doesn't seem like it's heads and tails faster, although some of these sources that we, we are, are going to see definitely made it feel like it was super fast, right? But it was silent. Especially in 1951, we have, we have jets. In 1951. Uh, I still think they're pretty loud, though. Mm-hmm. I don't think you're sneaking. Unless it's the... the Oh, geez. The Blackbird. The SR-71 Blackbird. Mm. But that's flying so <clears throat> high that you're not you're not going to see it. You're not going to hear it. You're much no. less capture a video or a picture of it. Yeah. So I don't think that's it. Unless, unless of course, you're going to go with, with the fact that they're testing it. Right? They're testing it. Yeah. But then if you plaster the bottom of a freaking covert plane with lights, like how does that make any sense? Anyway, we're gonna get we're we're gonna get a lot of tangents today, probably. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. So while these pictures are still grainy, and we're gonna come back, we're gonna come back to these scientists again. Again, they were trying to formulate the speed, which oh, that was my second point. While we have our main sources here that kind of roughly agree that's about six hundred miles per hour, I did find one source. And it was like, it was from 1999 and it wasn't totally updated. You don't know talk about where it has like the black background with the stars, but then this neon green type font that just oh, screams yeah. like, 
It screams like a 30-year-old <laughs> white dude in his basement, like, screaming at his mother for more pizza rolls. Wow. Like, that's kind of what it reminded me of. And it estimated it as going 18,000 miles an hour. 18,000. 18,000 miles an hour. So we have this pretty large discrepancy that I'm going to probably side with the majority of my sources on. As it wasn't going 18,000 miles an hour, it was going 600 miles per hour. But who knows, right? You never you never know. This person could have been on the right track. The the After seeing these photos, the professors would argue that these photos are showing something different than what they had seen themselves. And the reason why is because they say that the photos show more of a U-shape as opposed to a V-pattern that they were seeing. And in my mind, we're splitting hairs with this. Yeah. Like, when, we're, when you look at that picture, I don't see a U. Now, possibly like a rounded V, like I said, like a boomerang. But that's still a general V shape. So how much more V can you get? You know what I mean? Yeah. Are you listening to me? Yeah, sorry. I had a cat <laughs> trying to lay on my foot down there. I'm like, no. <clears throat> uh, so the sightings would soon catch the attention of the U.S. government. And a representative from Project Blue Book would be sent to Lubbock. That person's name was Captain Edward J. Rupelt. Now, oh, isn't that who we have in the picture here? Yes. And I have two pictures of him. You can pick whatever one you want. Uh, and then as we're talking about this, you can slide it in and out if you want. So she's going to put that picture of Edward J. Rupelt for me. There, Let me there. try to get a little bit bigger here. He is, in this picture, he's the one in the middle. Uh, for the audio listeners, we have an old picture, probably 1950s or so, of a group of men standing around a table. Two are sitting. For those of you who are in the live right now, uh, Mr. Rupelt or, um, is he Captain Rupelt? Did I just say it? I just forgot it. Yeah, Captain. Yeah, Captain. Captain Rupelt would be the one standing in between the two seated men. Pretty striking young man. And before we go much further, further, and we do this all the time, so I wanted to take this episode to start on some explanations for these different government projects. Because we always get caught up in the, oh, here is the project, we're going to get to more of that later because it's a long story. So I figure this would be a good place to start with at least toe in the waters of getting getting some of, these, of, some of this vernacular and these project names out. So first we're going to start with Project Blue Book, but we can't start with Project Blue Book because Project Blue Book is a third iteration of a governmental task force sent to study, to identify unidentified flying objects. Mm-hmm. Is that good enough? Easy yeah. enough to understand? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the end of World War II, and we're going to shorten this extremely because everybody knows how I like my history lessons. Uh, the, the world was essentially split into the eastern, more communist countries, i.e. the Soviet Union, and the western, more capitalist countries more or less in the united states this would lead to the cold war and if you don't know anything about the cold war don't know much about the cold war it was called the cold war because there were no all-out battles being fought it was more of a funneling of funds into into different organizations into different groups smaller countries uh into fighting smaller proxy wars so that we don't see the U.S. And the, and, and the Soviet Union battling each other all out. But you do see the United States feeding money into one group and the Soviet Union feeding money into an, the opposing group. And having that little group fight until something happened. And then they would call it a victory or not a victory. Of course, the Cold War would last until 1989, basically. When they rescinded their Soviet hood, communist whatevers. And now we have, of course, you know, Premier Putin and all, and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So... Uh, the most important thing for the United States right now during this Cold War, obviously, would be the 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 nuclear arms race. And if you don't know what the nuclear arms race is, uh, pretty simple. Just the stockpiling of nuclear weapons based on the actions of the United States against Japan uh, at the close of World War II with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, the main concern for everybody right now would be the, an idea called 
uh, mutually assured destruction, uh, or MAD, if you've never heard of this term, it would mean that regardless of the circumstances, regardless of anything being said, if radar from the United States or from Russia picked up anything that looked like missiles or nuclear weapons, they would automatically return fire, mm-hmm. even while knowing that all of these missiles could completely obliterate the country. There may be nothing left. They're going to make sure the exact same thing happens to the other side. So as a population in the United States, you see a lot of this propaganda kind of being formulated uh, on a two-headed front. On the first front, you have the uh, communists are bad. Communists are everywhere. And we need to we need to root them out so that they cannot take over this country. Uh, this was called the Red Scare. And it accompanied McCarthyism, which we are not going to go into McCarthyism today. Mm-hmm. But uh, just know that communists were everywhere and they were out to get your babies. Oh, yeah. The second front uh, is of trying to get people not to think about the atomic side so much. Because essentially, there was nothing that you could do. Okay, there's a great there's a great movie. I don't know if I've mentioned it here before or not because we've done shows longer together. Uh, the movie is called Atomic Cafe. Have I mentioned that oh, on here? I well, I don't know if you, I don't remember if you mentioned it. Okay, um, if if I did, you're gonna sit through it anyway. Atomic Cafe is a great movie where it's kind of like in two parts, and the first part is kind of going through and showing you uh, all the nuclear tests, like the Bikini Bay experiment, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then also show you these little mini commercials that they would play throughout the day. They would show to school children on what you should do, <clears throat> excuse me, on what you should do if an atomic explosion happened. So the practice was flash. What do you do? And you act like a turtle, for example. Yeah. So if you're walking down the street, flash. You would jump against the corner of a building in the sidewalk and hold your hands over your head. In schools, flash, you jumped under your desks, right? And you held your head and tried to try to do whatever. By the end of the movie, they start to replay all these commercials after showing you the, the destructive capability of all these nuclear weapons. And it's, and it's a, a terrifying yet interesting montage that they do where they'll substitute the flash in these commercials for a test a video of a test bomb and they show of the kids jumping up against the sides of buildings and then right after they would show the test buildings on these you know these nuke towns and it would just obliterate this building into a cloud of dust yeah and the idea is is that it didn't matter what you did uh, because you were you were gone you were yeah, a goner. But if it, it was, was meant to like give you a sense of some sense of, of security control, of, of se- control, security yeah. and control. That's what the point was to keep you okay with this idea that you have some control over the situation if a nuclear bomb were to go off mm-hmm. until it went off, and then once it went off, it didn't matter anyway because you weren't coming out of it. <laughs> exactly. So. So this is the the 1950s world we live in. So Project Blue Book didn't start as Project Blue Book. Obviously, the first iteration was Project Sign. And the idea of Project Sign was a little bit curious about the Martian mania at, at the time, right? We have these unidentified lights flying over. And sure, maybe there's a little bit curious about, you know, Martians and men from Mars and, stu- and such. But the main goal was to identify these things to make sure they weren't commies in the air. Right. We're going to investigate it and we're going to see if they're sending over spy planes and we're going to nab them because communists are bad and we're going to go everywhere. Yeah. So Project Sign wasn't around for that long, maybe two years or so. And I've gotten far ahead of myself in my explanation here. So where was I? Completely lost myself. Initially possibly called Project Saucer. That is not agreed upon, but that is a rumor. Uh, regardless of the title, the project was initially focused on investigating aerial phenomena. We already covered that, and the dog is shaking. That's fantastic. <laughs> Established in 1947, the project's first reports would be issued in 1949. Detailed numerous sightings of unidentified flying objects, most of which were explained as natural occurrences. 
A small number note would be classified certainly as aircraft, but has as of having unknown origins. This would leave both commie hunters and would-be ufologists lunging for guns and cameras respectfully. Sign would then end almost ominously, if we may add, that it recommends further investigation. So what they're saying is, is even though the majority of this stuff we can easily identify and explain, there is this much that we can't explain and we recommend you further study it. Shortly after Sign, it would be changed to Project Grudge. And Grudge would continue in the same vein as Sign, except for one small caveat, which Captain Air Force Captain Edward J. Rupelt, our person who we just kind of brought to the stage earlier, would write perfectly in his book that would come out in 1956, titled... I don't have it in front of me. The report of on flying saucers, unidentified flying objects. That's what it is. The report on unidentified flying objects in 1956. He would state that having uh, having to do with Project Grudge, quote, in doing this, standard intelligence intelligence procedures would be used. This normally means an unbiased evaluations of intelligence data, but it doesn't take a great deal of study of the old UFO files to see that the standard intelligence procedures were not being followed by Project Grudge. Everything was being evaluated on the premise that UFOs couldn't exist. No matter what you see or hear, don't believe it. So, what is important about this, right? We have two main players. I don't really want to bring them up, but we will just so you know. Mm -hmm. uh, Edward J. Rupelt uh, would be put in charge of Project Grudge and then eventually uh, uh, Project Blue Book, right? Um, throughout the whole, throughout the whole threeness of them, the trifecta of <laughs> of un, unidentified flying objects, uh, Doctor Alan Hynek would also be uh, a liaison to the scientific side, and Doctor even Doctor J. Alan Hynek would say of Grudge that it this was not a scientifically based series of investigations. No, uh, they would be under the under the idea that ninety nine percent of these are natural. We're going to find them. If they're not, then they're doesn't matter because they're not UFOs. They're not aliens. Doesn't matter. So, Grudge would put on a massive PR campaign would help quell the fears of men from Mars. This, of course, uh, would be seen as choosing the side of the coin that had Martians on one side and commies on the other. So they were choosing commies. If there are anything, mm -hmm. if there is anything in the sky that's flying around that we can't see, it's going to be commies. It's not going to be little green men. The findings of Grudge produced in 1949 would essentially sum up as follows. One, there are no Martian-made or manned aircraft flying above the United States. Two, all study of the subject for gains of proof of such should be greatly reduced by the government because they will find, uh, likely find what we did. Airplanes, stars, water balloons, etc. A.K.A. You don't need to worry about it anymore because we already found all there is to find. Mm -hmm. Three, the culprits of unidentified aerial phenomena are misidentifications of natural subjects, mass hysteria and war nerves, hoaxers and liars, and, quote, psychopathological persons. Now, I want this to be clear, that I did sum these up. I try not to plagiarize as much as I can, as much as I have to. Uh, and this was a summation of what was in the final few pages mm -hmm. of, the, of the summation of Grudge, right? While I summed it up, this is not far from what was said. Like, I did not gussy it up the least amount as I, you know, as I had to. Uh, so this is pretty scary. Because so in short, if you witness anything unusual in the night sky that you can't explain, you are either misidentifying what you are seeing, a liar, or flat out crazy. And this was a government study. It's kind of interesting now when you flash forward to our time, uh, you know, that same theory with now you have military coming out, government coming out saying, yeah, UFOs are real. Mm -hmm. You know, and their pilots, Air Force pilots, 
describe having these interactions with them. You know, it's kind of a big, no. oh, so now yeah. they're real. Yeah. Do you have anything to add at all? I mean, you've been quiet. I mean, not yet, no. Okay. <laughs> but I will. <laughs> I do. But I will. <laughs> After the findings of Project Grudge, some say that people, some people in the military did take offense to the UFOs don't exist stance that Grudge had taken. It appears the possibility of extraterrestrials being brushed off as an out, in, a, in such an outward manner warranted another try. And now we're going to cue Project Blue Book. Which, which of all of them I'd imagine is probably the most one that's most well known. Mo- yeah. Right? Project Blue Book. Yeah. Project Blue Book started in this, like, especially in its first part of it, was like the golden age of acceptance or at least inquiry as, as to what is happening in the skies. Um, and this was obviously headed up by Air Force Captain Edward James Rupel. Edward James Ruppelt was actually credited with with bringing in to the common vernacular the term unidentified flying object. Up until then, we had flying saucers and flying, flying discs, yeah. which he felt were misleading. Of course, up until now, the one of the bigger well, we had we had Roswell, and that was flying saucer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then before that, we had um, the Mount Rainier sighting, which the pilot who had witnessed it described it as saucer-like discs. Mm-hmm. So they kind of like just kind of how do you say it? Applied it to everything. What's that term? Product branding? Is that it? When pretty, you Xerox something? Yeah, I was thinking about the Aurora, out. Texas crash also. Because, no, but that, that one didn't, that one have, oh, I guess it was described as flying saucer, but yeah. it was actually a cigar thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he wanted to get away from that because he felt like it was alienating the people who didn't actually see a disc. I mean, once you say flying saucer, you get thrown into the crazy pile, even though what you were seeing may not have been a disc shape and it may mm-hmm. automatically takes away, you know, your credibility. Yeah. Right? Because whenever somebody thinks of a flying disc or a flying saucer, they think of the and not maybe it's a legitimate new craft and it's not shaped like a disc. But now people are saying that you saw flying saucers Mm -hmm. and now I'm going to just shut up about the whole thing. Right. So that's why he wanted to change that. Um, Where was I? Where was I? Now I always lose my place. I usually highlight. I didn't highlight today. Um, It would be under these circumstances that Rupel would arrive in Texas with his turn at the Lubbock Lights. He came into town in September 1951 and was already welcomed by a budding investigation by these professors who had initially seen these lights. Uh, by, by now, though, when Rupelt had come into town in September, right? And this was, what, a month after he had come in almost. Mm-hmm. Now there were hundreds and hundreds of sightings across the town of Lubbock. Okay, so now he had to sift through all of this. Now, upon talking with the professors, the professor had done some of the work for him, although with his own investigation, he would have to redo it kind of anyway, just because of their own critiques of of the situation of each individual storyteller that they attained. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I have no idea where I was going with that. So he had to go through, he had to go through and, uh, and find these, find these witnesses himself as, uh, the professors also had compiled their own, like I had said, um, and, tra- and tried to cross-reference them with their own story to see uh, as much information as they as they can. Um, they discerned that they discerned the direction and arc of travel the lights were taking, which I believe was was northwest to southeast. I think I had seen. I didn't note it in here, but I think that's what it was. Um, they'd even divided up into two teams to try to calculate the light speed, which they didn't have a lot of success in doing. Now, Rupelt, when he had come in and kind of assessed this whole situation about the, the professors having their own thing going on and how many people are seeing these lights, one thing he did notice is that the number of people who had sightings that he had interviewed 
had not seen the initial sighting, and the only reason why they had had sightings of their own was because their attention was brought to the lights overhead via a newspaper article that had been written about the professor's initial sighting. Mm-hmm. So I he didn't I I didn't find any exact numbers obviously because I think we're dealing with that big of a population that had seen these lights in Lubbock to say that the majority of the the secondary tertiary sightings however you want to say it happened because people were told to look up. Mm-hmm. Would people have noticed the lights if they hadn't read the article? And this is exactly what Rappel was asking himself. Do people look up if they have no reason to do so? Which then brings a question, you know what, maybe I should keep going. Yep, let's keep going here. One story that would convey this sentiment to Rupelt would be his interview of a rancher who would see the lights for himself. The rancher had explained that he had seen a lot in his life. Between range wars, stagecoaches, and conversation with Native Americans, not a lot scared him. But these lights scared him. Now here's the thing, though. When was the Old West? Like, when did the Old West Eventually end? end? Uh... We're still talking 1890s. Yeah. Right. So this ranchers, this is 1951. He was f- f- 51 in 1900. So he could have been like 60 some, 70 some. Okay, I guess that kind of makes sense. Were people really still killing natives in yeah. like 1900? In Lubbock, I mean. Oh, I don't know about in Lubbock, but I know around the U.S. Possibly, they were, yeah. yeah. Huh. Yeah. Like all flat out. Anyway, I just had that small little thing and I, I wanted to throw it in there. Yeah. Weird. That's pretty scary that by 1951, you still have people who remember mass genocide. Anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she says. <laughs> he said, uh, an interesting aside to the interview, the rancher fell right in line with the numerous other people who started looking for the lights after their attention had been brought to them via the newspaper articles. But this rancher would have a theory of his own. He believed the lights not to be any nefarious government project, not any communist with a spy plane, and not any man from Mars. No, he his idea was that it was birds. Birds. Specifically, and we're probably going to, I'm just for fair warning everybody in the live feed right now and anybody in the audio side uh, when you come to it. We're going to say this different ways because we've already <laughs> seen this. Specifically, he thought they were plovers. Or, plovers. Or plovers. Or Danny Plovers. Danny Plovers. That's what I kept thinking the whole time when we were reading this. Script. We don't know how to say this word. If you watch the History Channel show Project Blue Book, they, uh, I believe, in that show, uh, Aiden Gillen says Plovers. But then your guys' natural reaction is to say Plovers. Yeah. Like Clovers. Yeah. Right? So I don't know how to say this thing. It's a type of sandpiper, about a foot long. Um, they're known for running real fast across the sandy places of the United States. I know that some places like in North and South Carolina, they actually have uh, wildlife kind of refuges, small ones where they put like what amounts to be like chain link fence around nesting mm-hmm. grounds so that other animals can't get in, but the plovers can get in and out because I don't know if they're endangered, but it's to help their numbers. Right. That's and we have yeah. a picture up of one right now. Now, the first thing, if you see this picture that you'll notice is, is the white underbelly. Now, this rancher surmised that the plovers, who were large in number in Texas in, in that month or in that, that season, right, that year, um, with their oily white undersides, reflected the light of the newly installed mercury vapor, mercury vapor streetlights down below. Of course, Rupelt thought this was as good as theory as any at this point. But, of course, I'm trying to find where I was here. Uh, but, of course... 
could birds be this bright of lights? Now, can we go back to the Lubbock Lights um, picture? Yeah. So everybody here in the in the live now sees the picture of the plover. And just imagine 20 or 30 of these plovers flying overhead. Now, what goes to the Lynn Credence to it, of course, is the fact that nobody heard anything from these lights. It was silent, right? That's what we've been told so far in this story. Um, it was odd because it looked lo- like a large aircraft with landing lights, 20 or 30 bluish green ones, but it was deadly silent, right? You get that up there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm looking at the old one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez, I got two up right now. So she switched over to the to the lights there. Now, from a from this camera from 1951, I can't vouch for the quality of pictures and cameras and light refraction well, yeah. in 1951, but these look like pretty bright lights. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like to be able to have been picked up on a 1950s camera. It feels like a stretch, right? Yeah. For it to be a reflection off of an animal's stomach? Yeah. I mean, and if, look how look how round. Let me grab my little cursor here. Look how round like the, the these are for the most part perfectly round circles. On the on the left-hand side picture. Yeah, yeah. And I I'm just failing to see how that could possibly be. The reflection of the underbelly of these birds. That doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, now, we're gonna we're probably going to re- rehash this again later, but now we're talking about the plovers. First off, plovers are said to not fly in this big a group, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we did say earlier that there was a, a, a much larger amount uh, of plovers in the area this, this year, 1951. Uh, they had seen a larger population flying through, which could account for the multiple quote-unquote passes this aircraft or lights have made but like i said at the same time like even with a picture today if you catch a reflection on your phone camera like it's not it's usually not a light it usually it looks like a weird streak or something right yeah uh you can catch a reflection of yourself in a window but you can still tell that it's a faint outline yeah this is these pictures look clearly like lights. Yeah, exactly. Like you strung a bunch of spotlights and that's what you took the picture of. Doesn't look like a secondary reflection of light off of feathers. No, and would the reflective qualities really be that pronounced? That's Because yeah. how far up in the air are these birds or these lights or whatever? Now, to that, to that, how far up do they have to be? In order for you to not recognize them as birds, but still see their reflective quality. Exactly. These lights in this picture, they look decently large, which means one of either two things. They really are large and they're up high in the sky, or they're not very large and they're closer to the viewer. If they're that close to the viewer and you don't hear the normal sounds of a, what a plover makes, I should have cu- captured an audio clip of this. Mm. But if they're that close to you, do you not think that, that you would hear something or recognize other things other than just their underbellies yeah this is this is this is going to be the cyclical argument and questioning behind the lubbock lights for the majority of this case Mm -hmm. uh was it was it random sandpiper birds flying over that happened to be reflecting off their oily underbellies why are you shaking your head they're the size of a sparrow I thought they yeah, were a foot see, long. So exactly. They're the size okay, of a maybe, sparrow. Okay, they are a sandpiper, <laughs> so maybe I had seen the the They're... length of a another type of sandpiper. Yeah. yeah. Regardless, I gave it I gave it bigger than what it was. Right. I I even went farther then. <laughs> They're not, I knew they weren't that big. So the I again the idea is, is that these birds, no matter their size, because I I even I, even if I made the mistake of 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 measuring them or whatever, even if they were a foot long a foot lo- in length. 
you'd still have to have them pretty darn close to you for you to see them as lights. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe they should start going to the Amish and start pushing off the reflective tape because, dang, maybe they're just that reflective. Just get you some plovers. <laughs> just get you plovers and stick them to the back of your carriages, right? Your Problem buggies. solved. But that just still seems odd. A local farmer, T.E. Snyder, would also claim that he would be attending a drive-in movie and he would see a group of plovers fly overhead. He would say that their undersides, undersides did indeed reflect light from the ground. Another individual who had seen the initial flyby that the professors had seen had also watched the second and third waves of the sighting on the same night. He attested that the third pass, uh, the lights actually circled the house for a time, and then he recognized the lights as undeniably as plovers. Right? Plovers, plovers. Plovers, yeah. So, the point here is, is that T.E. Snyder, a local farmer who was attending a drive-in movie instantly recognized these things not as mysterious lights, but as birds. The second person had to have the third pass of whatever it was. Then they flew around his house. Then he recognized them as, as plovers. So there seems to be something odd going on here. Now, are they that silent that they don't, that at this point in time, hundreds of other people in Lubbock didn't hear them make a sound through their trip over town? Yeah. That's, that's the oddest part about it. Uh, some combat this idea by saying that plovers are not known to travel in the same amount that we see of the lights. We've already said that. Rupel would also speak with a local game warden who would say that the plovers wouldn't be out of his realm of explanation, although he would find it unlikely due to the perceived speed of lights compared to the flight speed that plovers are usually seen to maintain. Mm -hmm. Again, if, they are, if they're close enough to be that big in a photograph then you would easily recognize them as as plovers at their flight speed. But with the speed at least estimated that these Lubbock lights are s said to have gone at, there's very little evidence to this game warden that they're traveling anywhere near the speed that a plover would. They're traveling much faster, mm -hmm. right? Ooh, where was I? A one yeah. doctor... Me oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, what was the reported speed that... Uh, witnesses claimed that this thing was moving. It wasn't like 600 miles per hour. Well, that that's roughly a, a few of them. They have kind of triangulated and possibly estimated at 600 miles an hour. Yeah. But they're not totally sure. Now, of course, that could go out of whack if the perspective of whatever the object is closer or farther away could true, have done. True that. Because I think you need like three different measurements to calculate something's speed, right? Well, you, the height away, and then you would need point A and point <coughs> B and mm -hmm. how fast they got to point A to get to point B. And that would you could estimate feet per second, yards per second, however you want to do that, eventually mile, miles per hour or whatever. Um, but yeah, but the idea is, is is still the same, that if they're close enough to be going, quote-unquote, that fast and they're plovers, you would easily recognize them as, as plovers. Yeah. It wouldn't be in question, at least not as, not as easily as it was made out to be. Uh, one Dr. Mead had witnessed the lights and was convinced that they were not simply plovers. He argued that the lights were too big to be birds. It would have to be much closer to the witnesses to appear as the same size as what was being seen in the lights. He continued that if plovers were as close as they needed to be in order to appear that large in the sky, there would be no doubt that they would be clearly seen as a bird. Um, through his hunting experience, told him for the explanation to be birds, they would be flying extremely low for them to pass out of sight so quickly. In his opinion, this proves that the lights were much higher up in the sky and flying much faster than an ordinary bird could. Now, this leads to our second kind of point to this, right? The one, the one way, and we, and we can't, I don't want to say the one way that it differs because this is one of the really big first, you know, uh, light sightings. Uh, but we would see this, you know, retrospectively now across different sightings. When we see sightings of UFOs, whether it be full fledged, 
ships or whatever or just lights usually we we have this common formula of lights appear people see incidents reported end of story right um and that's usually where it ends <coughs> and then we start talking about the lights uh that had happened on this occasion the lubbock lights were seen multiple times a night over the course of several months mm-hmm. right so what was happening what was it that made that made the this phenomenon happen so often for this long a period of time um i have no idea where i was <laughs> by the end of this investigation rupelt would have no concrete answers answers for the air force and of course one could easily shoot the fish barrel of possible misidentifications that this could have been now rupelt would go on like i said earlier to write a book in 1956 called the report on unidentified flying objects and he would uh, he would designate an entire chapter on the lubbock lights in which he would he would write quote they weren't birds they weren't reflect, reflected light but they were uh, but they weren't spaceships the lights have been positively identified as a very commonplace and easily explainable natural phenomenon it is uh, it is very unfortunate that i can't divulge the way the answer was found telling the story would lead to the identity of the scientist who finally hit upon the answer and i promise the man complete anonymity yes first time <laughs> anonymity first time <laughs> So what we hear, what we hear in this statement in 1956, I think he's coming after you there. Mm-hmm. In 19, what we hear from this statement in 1956 is, guys, we know what it is. It's natural. Don't worry about it. Completely natural. Completely fine. I can't words. tell you who came up with it, and I can't tell you how we know we came up with it, and I can't tell you what it is exactly. But just know it's fine. It's normal. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's good. So what? What is it? Do you guys have any ideas on what a natural phenomenon could have caused the Lubbock lights that he couldn't tell exactly what it is, how they found out about it, or the scientists that, that came up with it? No. Nope. No. When we think of natural phenomena, because I started to think when I was writing the script that I was maybe like going too deep into what that phrase means. What is the criteria of things that would be considered natural? The auroras. Mm-hmm. Uh, meteor showers. Yeah falling other types of light re- reflection <laughs> birds notwithstanding child catapults uh child catapults like, like, like a trebuchet just fling children <laughs> just throw a child in the air i'm just saying could <laughs> just, that be a natural just bring thing the grandkids over to live with me, okay <laughs> because i don't like the where this is going <laughs> regardless would you find a military test vehicle would you would you consider that a natural phenomenon? No, certainly not. So if Rupel was talking about, we know what it was. It was, we don't want to say it, but he, if he was like, you know what, about where you die, I don't care. Uh, it was a test plane. Yeah, but we can't tell you what it was. Or who told me that? Do you think that this sentence could be translated as such? It was a test plane. We can't tell you what it is. If it was, why would they even release that kind of information when you're worried about the communists flying over? You know what I'm saying? True. Like, why would you even say that? True. Stick with the bird theory. If nothing else, stick with the bird theory. <laughs> but never say it's a test plane or test vehicle. But even no. if he did, but even if he did, it would be more, at least, clarified information than its natural phenomena. It wasn't birds, though, but it was completely natural. Yeah. But we can't tell you what it was. Well, if it's natural phenomena, just tell us what it is. Okay, it's farts. That's what it's it is. Far, that's it's really what, what happens when you get 20 or more people in a, in a congruent area together and close, and they've been eating beans the night before. It was August, which means state fair Ooh. season. Noxious gas. Did floated we talk up, about... Floated up in the atmosphere, reflected <laughs> off 
the the uh upper leaves uh <sighs> on the trees and kind of bounced off the clouds and then what you have here is completely round <laughs> circles of light in a v pattern from ultimately from deep fried butter sticks there it is <laughs> at the lo, lo, i don't know what county that is L- a little lo, bit of photosynthesis thrown in there for good measure but that's what it is <clears throat> let's just say that it was a test plane let's just say it was a, a test plane they're testing stuff out right isn't there like more desolate places you could have tested a plane no let's just do it right in the smack in the middle of texas well i'm sure texas has its semi-desolate places Maybe I'm just wrong on the, on the demographics and the, the geographics of Texas, uh, but isn't there more desolate places in Texas than over... I mean, I guess Lubbock like was 50,000 people at the time. Area 50, 51, for example. You could have... You, you have, like, entire deserts where <laughs> oh, there's not many people. White Sands testing grounds and all that stuff. So if it, if it were a, a test plane, okay, there's much better places to do it. Let alone, why did you need to do it multiple times tonight over the course of a few months and then be surprised that hundreds of people had seen it? This is why I think that it wasn't a test plane. For sure. Like, maybe maybe they were testing out the public's reaction. Maybe it was a test to see if anybody would say that it was commies or come forward with information on it. Maybe there's more to the story than that. But the general idea is it seems like a very trivial thing to test while having a big cover-up without coming yeah. up with some other reasoning, besides telling us that it wasn't birds, but it was still natural, but we can't tell you what it was, we can't tell you how we found it, we can't tell you who found it. So don't even ask Don't us. even ask anymore. Because <laughs> we're not going to tell you. Anyway, this case hasn't left popular consciousness, though. The History Channel has even retold the story in its series, inventively titled Project Blue Book. Did you hear my sarcasm? Yes. A little bit. Okay, good. Unfortunately, as in the case with many networks now, they decided to take the docudrama route when taking us through the investigations of Dr. J. Allen Hynek in this series. You may find it odd since we haven't really mentioned Dr. Hynek a whole lot during this whole series. Now, when I was searching for information on the Lubbock Lights, believe it or not, there's not a lot of video stuff. I couldn't Mm -hmm. find a whole lot of video stuff on the Lubbock Lights. Now, there may be some Lubbock Lights stuff buried in episodes of other shows, but none of them pop for me. Yeah. What did pop was a reoccurring commercial for the Lubbock Light episode of Project Blue Book, starring Aiden Gillen and that other guy. Mm-hmm. I don't remember his name. Um, so so I, I jumped on it because it was the only thing that I had to watch. I had never watched it. I had never seen it. So with it being a docudrama and not like... How do you say it? Like one-off episodes? Like Unsolved Mysteries? You don't need to watch Unsolved Mysteries from one. You can jump into 32 and it doesn't matter because it's a self-contained episode. This one has a Mm storyline. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll buy into it. So I watched one, which was, I can't remember what it was called. Like the Fuller Dog Fight, maybe? Okay. I never heard of that one. Uh, The second one was the Flatwoods Monster. And the third one was the Lubbock Lights. All of them having to do with Dr. J. Allen Hynek's involvement with an Air Force captain, right? Uh, who was sent to be on the ground investigating stuff. Which, afterwards, after doing this inve- doing this research, I find that, I don't remember his name, but I don't think it was Rupelt. Maybe the Air Force captain was supposed to be Rupelt? But J. Allen Hynek was nowhere really to be found in the research for the Lubbock Lights. So I tried specifically searching, was J- Dr. J. Allen Hynek in the investigation of the Lubbock Lights? Could not find anything. Which hmm. leads me to believe they just kind of threw it in for a good old story. Yeah. And if you go back and you listen to the script... Go on a bit of a tirade. Point is, is that even though we have a bunch of these History Channel shows that just muck up everything, 
I grew up watching the documentary-style stuff that you can now hopefully still see at 3 in the morning, right? The day that Hitler invaded. Blah, blah, blah. And all this stuff, right? Battlefield tactics with the still paintings and pictures with an old dude who just narrates the whole thing. That's what I like. Yeah. Give me the boring information. I will turn it into fun in my mind. But once you start making a docuseries that uh, has yep, an underlined that has an underlying story that needs to be cared for and coddled, and the only thing left are like three or four core facts about each each thing you have, I'm to the point that I just want to say with these shows, that show has since been canceled. Okay, first off, two mm-hmm. seasons, it was canceled. And the reason why it was canceled, I'll tell you right now, first and foremost, it hardly had any factual information. Yeah. It was, like I said, three or four core facts. And that's what we have to go off of to make this story fold around to continue, right? Mm-hmm. Second, if you're not going to be historically accurate, that's fine. You don't have to be historic- historically accurate. But God damn it, I want to see the Flatwoods Monster. <laughs> okay? If I'm watching the episode called the Flatwoods Monster, <laughs> I need to see more of the Flatwoods Monster than a two-second rip right before the title cut. And that's the only thing you get. Mm-hmm. Right? If it's not going to be historically accurate, then scare me. But they didn't. Yep. Now, I watched the first three in the past Lubbock Lights. I didn't even watch any more of it. And maybe, maybe I was just too consumed with my own emotions to really make a better judgment call on whether or not I should continue <coughs> listen, watching this show. Side note, I do like Aiden Gillen. I've said this before. Yeah. This whole cast is great. It's got a great cast in it. But- I don't care that... J. Allen Hynek's wife was possibly trying to be seduced by some Soviet whatever. That's not even a spoiler. If that's a spoiler for the first three episodes, I don't care. That's what starts to happen in the first three episodes. I didn't watch to see how it panned out. Maybe I'm completely wrong. But if you're going to do that, give me more of the monsters. Mm -hmm. Okay? But they didn't. So it's gone. (laughs) Anyway, that was my partial rant. (laughs) It's dumb. Are you done now? It's dumb. <laughs> I need some shock value if you're not going to be historically accurate. We don't care about J. Allen Hynek's wife. <laughs> we don't give a good damn. I want to see more swamp gas. Let her screw half the neighborhood. We really don't <laughs> care. <laughs> Build a bomb shelter and be stalked by somebody. Anyway. <laughs> Anybody have anything to say? You said you had something earlier. Yeah, the lights. Uh, when I lived in Williamsburg, Ohio, I don't know if I remember telling my mom about this or not, but my friends next door had a pool. And we remember just, we were floating, so of course we were looking straight up. Mm-hmm. And I was telling you about this. Um, the formation of the lights kind of remind me of how it looked on the bottom of this one giant thing. Oh, wow. Um, And you couldn't hear it, even when we came up out of the water. You know how underwater you can't hear nothing? Well, mm-hmm. even when you come up out of the water, you still couldn't hear it. Yeah. Not even a hum, really. Really? <laughs> Um, but the kind of like V shape that it does uh-huh. is exactly what it looked like on here. Interesting. But and did you hear any noises with it? Nope. Not even a hum mm. or anything. It just yep. kind of hovered there for a minute and then it was gone. You know what it was? No. Plovers? No. <laughs> no, it wasn't plovers. It wasn't plovers. <laughs> no, because I researched it. I investigated it and uh, it was not plover season. I, it wasn't. It was not. They were not migrating. Oh, <laughs> no. Uh. Plus, I feel like if a bird... If for it to be that close to you, you're going to be able to see the wings or hear the wings. Yeah, or even, that's what I thought too. Yeah, yep, or that's hear what I thought too. Yeah, bird noises. Yep, yep. especially if you not... have this many of them. 
Yep. You know, now, it's, it's like ducks or geese going over. You can hear them. Yeah. They're loud, you know? too. Yeah. They're yeah. noisy about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, also, last night, though, thing that I didn't tell you guys, last night we were out looking at the comet, and uh, we're trying to look for it under Urza Major, and it's right above the horizon for us here in the Northern Hemisphere. And uh, apparently, uh, Tara and her dad had seen a light that was moving super fast, and they go, hey, look at this light. It's moving. Never mind. It shot off. Daryl and I saw something out back last night also. Really? Yeah, we're... Yeah, was it last night or the night before? We were standing outside taking the dogs out. Mm-hmm. And we're, I'm always looking at the sky. Yeah. And so we just happened to be looking up and, and Daryl, uh, you know, was like, do you see that? Is that a star right there? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I'm like, look at the one beside it. So then we start, you know, and, and they're, you know, relatively close together. But I'm like, watch it. And then we started watching it. And it clearly... You couldn't see any flashing because you always look for the flashing. Mm-hmm. Is it a plane? Something like that. There was no flashy thing. So then you seen it and then it went up and then it went like this down back up like and it just sharp, kind of sharp, quick little movement. Yeah. Huh. And I was like, did you just, did you saw that, didn't you? And he's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then after a few minutes, we're like, let's just go back in the house because <laughs> this is going to be one of those things that keeps me up all night. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, this the Lubbock Lights with the early formation of Project Blue Book would usher in the continued common trope of laughable government findings and intrigue surrounding anything regarding UFOs. So anything that you see on X-Files, the start of it, the start of the cliches started here. And that's all we have for today. I like I like this story. Yeah, the Lubbock Lights. Yeah, good one. There's quite a few books on it. Like I said too, uh, with uh, the uh, the book by Edward J. Rupelt himself, uh, you can read that one. Um, I do have some links up top from the site, the sources that I had cited today. Uh, but it really is an interesting case from multiple different angles to see the the government how it approached things in its infancy. Not the government's yeah. infancy, but in the infancy of the investigations of, of these lights and UFOs. Mm-hmm. To see how they were approached. And to see how people were meant to feel crazy. I was just going to say. <laughs> under the guise of whatever guise you wanted it to be. Whether that guise was for national security of of keeping things locked down so nothing was stolen. Or at least amount was stolen by, by Russia. Uh, or to keep people not panicking. Because of this mutually assured destruction, atomic era that we had come into, um, or if it was really extraterrestrials, you know, and maybe any given combination of the three or more things that we didn't bring up today, uh, it's still interesting to find these different avenues. But that it the damn sure wasn't plovers. <laughs> Those little bastards. <laughs> Can't get them. <laughs> Those little plovers. Mm. <laughs> oh man! All right, do you guys have anything else to add today? No, no. I'm done. You're done. All right, I'm done. Thank you for joining us today on Supernatural Tendencies podcast. Um, if you are listening to this on Tuesday or after, you have missed the live video. If you wish to join the live video, we actually have our group, uh, the Supernatural Tendencies group. Um, we usually post in there uh sometimes but we go live from our podcast page so if you get a chance go over our supernatural tendencies podcast page on facebook give us a like and a follow then you will be notified make sure you turn your notifications on you'll be notified when we go live we do have uh our uh comments open across our platform so if you decide to uh, type in a question or two or alex your just your beard is beautiful and i just wanted to tell you i'll say thank you I appreciate <laughs> that. I, uh, I'm glad that you added that. Uh, please join us in for that on every Sunday. Uh, sometimes the uh, the time really varies. It's usually after two. 
It very, usually varies in between there, but it's usually after two that we come on. Um, also join us on Thursdays for our midweek mischief that isn't necessarily set in stone every Thursday. We probably will not have one this week, um, but we will have one next week I'm hoping for. Mm-hmm. Uh, look for this episode to be released on Tuesday, if I can get it edited in time. But I do have two vacation days, and I'm ahead in my writing, so it probably will be done. <laughs> so that's fantastic to hear. Also, one more time, uh, tune into Redline Radio if you get a chance, uh, whether by that app on Android or whether you go on the browser. I see that we've lost their icon already. Uh, but if you're around on Tuesday for our release, we usually try to do that in the morning. Why are you smirking? I had to take it off there because I didn't want the, you know, the mysterious Lubbock Lights lettering to go right through. Mm, I see. You're cutting them out already. Rupelts. 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 Anyway, so we try to get that released uh, Tuesday morning, so listen to the episode, and then um, join us, was it 4 to 5, on the Redline Radio on Network? Redline Radio on Tuesdays. And uh, we do, they do the live uh, through their Facebook page, so hop on their, uh, their Facebook page, give them a like and a follow, uh, uh, update your notifications for them as well. You'll see us from 4 to 5, if we're on time this week, we promise we'll try to be. Uh, other than that, audio listeners, stick around for our band uh, today, 408, fantastic pop punk band. If I remember right, hope they're pop punk. <laughs> I didn't listen to them before I came in today. I listened to them a few days ago. You're fired. <laughs> anyway, thank you for joining us this week, and we hope to see you next week. Alrighty, take care, guys. We'll see you then. Bye bye. Love you. Bye. We'd like to thank you one last time for joining us this week. If you have any questions, comments, critiques, or stories you'd like to share, please email us at stpcmedia at gmail.com. If hearing us isn't enough, be sure to check out our website at www.supernaturaltendenciespodcast.com. Also join us on the socials, Supernatural Tendencies Podcast, on both Facebook and Instagram, as well as Twitter, at Weird and Scary. While we do keep our content as free as we possibly can, if you would like to support the show monetarily, check out our Public account by searching Supernatural Tendencies on Public. We have shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, and phone cases, among many other things. Don't want to spend money? We'll gladly take reviews. No money needs to be spent if you hop on your podcast platform and give us a rating and review. Either way, we would be eternally grateful. If you get bored before next week's episode, be sure to join our Facebook group where many other like-minded people share stories and laughs until the show airs again. This has been Christy. Alex and Christina. See you next time. Bye. Hey, we're glad that you flew back in with us after the Lubbock Light episode, which I must say was a pretty good one. (laughs) Goddamn plovers. Really? Plovers? Not even buying it. Come on now. A bunch of people do think it is. Well, they just buddy up with the ducks and the geese and the squirrels, and we're just going to explain all UFOs. But you know who doesn't think it was plovers? The band for today. (laughs) I haven't spoken with them specifically, but I would hope that they don't think it's plovers. If they do, that's fine. I'm just making the the assumption that they don't think it's plovers. The band today is called 408, and they are out of Orlando, Florida. And they're trying to bring you back the late 90s, early 2000s pop punk. I let you guys listen to a little excerpt of uh, their song today. What'd you think about it? Pretty good, pretty good. I liked them. The the you know the melody and the mm-hmm. upbeatness of it, right? Yeah, yeah. Really sounds like like the newfound glory Blink One Eighty Two stuff, it right? It does. Which is funny because if we don't have a metal band, it's like a pop punk band. You notice that? Yeah. We've had like six pop punk bands. One 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 rap. 
yeah. slash hip Eddie Brock. Yeah. Yep, Eddie Brock out of New York. Yeah. We had the one hippie type feel too. What, oh, last that week? was like acoustic yeah. hoop. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, yeah. yeah, I like yeah. them a lot. But we get a lot of pop punk, which is totally fine because I'm completely cool with pop punk bands. Anyway, uh, as again, we're not going to keep going through this every week until we start opening and opening back up. No shows for these guys, most likely. I don't see any on their Facebook page. But if you get a chance, hop on over to their Facebook page, 408 Band. Or I think it's just 408. I typed in the search bar, 408 Band. There they are. Give them a like. They are streaming this this song out right now on Spotify and Apple Music. So if you get a chance, get on that. I'm not sure if it's an album or just a single. But check it out. I'm sure you're going to like it. Here it is called Dropout. I'm looking for the answers and failing under pressure. I can't believe I have to take this stupid course again in the back of Amber's car. I never thought we'd get that far. I'm always chasing, never changing. I want to feel like I'm in control. Spiraling down this rabbit hole. Four years waiting, four years wasted. Now I'm sleeping on the floor. I lost my phone and lost my key. Maybe I should give up